0: Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 29 for Sunday, November 17th, 2013. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And today we are talking with Peter Cassidy Sibrian, who was reunited with his family in nineteen ninety. Eight at the age of 15. Before we get into that interview, we just wanted to mention something that's uh, been in the news that directly relates to all the work that we're doing here with the, with the project. And uh, John, do you want to tell us what happened in El Salvador?
1: Sure. So we record these intros a little separate from the actual interviews. And uh, in the meantime, <clears throat> Probusqueda, the organization that found Nelson and hundreds of other children that went missing in the war, was basically ransacked and uh, at gunpoint at four in the morning on Thursday the the 14th, the 13th or 14th, and a lot of records were destroyed and uh, people were tied up and and thought they might die and it seemed like a very professional campaign designed to terrorize them and also to hinder their work. So it was really upsetting. I'm not sure that they will metaphorically fight back very hard, but we just want to wish them well and uh, and hopefully we can address it, it and help people understand it better in a future podcast when, when we've had more time to understand what happened.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's, I was saying to John before the show, I think our strength is really in taking a step back and really digging into issues instead of uh, breaking the news, so to speak. So we are definitely going to come back to this. We wanted to let you know that it happened. We put a link in the show notes, so please go, you know, read about it, and and we'll come back to it at a future date.
1: Okay. Again, this week we're interviewing uh, Peter Cassidy sibrian and it's really a, a privilege to get to do it. And I learned a lot about Peter's story that I didn't know in this interview, and it was really really great. It'll it'll come out in two parts this week and next, and. I know, Nelson, you really responded to it.
0: All right, let's get into it. Today, we are with Peter Cassidy Sibrian, who is another disappeared child and uh, someone who was reunited around the same time that I was. And uh, we just wanted to say welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And today, we're going to be talking a little bit about your story and what, uh, you know, some of your experiences and then. What are the challenges of keeping connected back to this uh this other life or this other world that you know we we've both experienced over the years okay. So I think a great place to start is simply what what's your story how uh you know whatever you want to share about um being separated from your family and then reuniting with them, I'm sure our audience would love to to get to know a little bit more about your your story
2: okay. Well, my whole family was living in the Salvadoran refugee camp in Mesa Grande, Honduras. My okay, story I think, is interesting okay. because my mother in 82 – I was born November of 82. Mm-hmm. My father um, from Honduras was married at the time, and he never told my mother this. Never told So your her.
1: father is Honduran? He's Honduran. Okay.
2: He was married, and he was the head plumber maintenance guy at the refugee camp. After I was born, his wife came to the refugee camp being like, I want to raise Ernesto, because that was my name, as my own. My mother got very scared. She was a poor Salvadoran woman living in a refugee camp. My father's side of the family had money. So her and my grandfather fled the refugee camp with my sister and walked for about a month back to the northern part of El Salvador. She then stayed there. She was working in a bakery. And I don't know the whole story, but my, my mother and me and my sister were part of a massacre up in the northern part of El Salvador called the Gualsinga River Massacre in in August of 1984 was when this massacre took place and she was running trying to hide and that's when she was killed the same bullet that murdered her shot me went through her breast and shot me in the right arm so my mother actually lived in El Salvador that time during the war because she was basically scared for my safety she fled Honduras because of my father and thinking that she would lose me Um, after that I was actually separated from my family my sister was returned to the Red Cross and I was taken and kidnapped from my family and put into different different places and later finally ended up in an orphanage in Santa Tecla, El Salvador, called Alberto de Garola, where I was later adopted by my American family or American mother, Kathleen Cassidy. Um I grew up most of my life, I'd say from the age of four or five, you know, until I was fifteen years old, knowing that I was from El Salvador. I got shot in my arm because I had a huge bullet wound in my right arm, but not knowing much more of my story. It was still very much hidden from me. Um, in 1997, my, my mother's best friend from college, her husband, was the Peace Corps director in El Salvador. And they heard of Pro Buscada, and they started sending over some of my stuff to them. And then it wasn't until 1998 when, I guess, all of the records started matching up, and I got a call from Ralph Sprinkles from Pro saying, we found your family. They're living in the northern part of um, El Salvador in the Chalatenango Province area in a place called Corgila. So I would say March of 1998 was the first time I flew down there to meet my family, and it was an interesting experience. And I would spend the next I don't, 15, 16 years of my life going down there and building a relationship with them and they changed my life in a lot of ways. I was very lucky because I was found at a young age where I was kind of naive. I was young, 15, 16 years old. I didn't overthink things, where if I was an adult now, if I was reunited with them, I'd kind of overthink things a little bit more. So I take that as a blessing, but that's kind of the condensed version of my story.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because I've said, the same thing to other people that, uh, you know, being 16, you were young enough to enjoy it and old enough to understand what was going on.
2: Yeah, like I, I would say I had a lot of emotions when I was younger and I was reunited with my family, especially like trying to track down my father's side of the family that I did later, trying to understand my whole story, as well as the fact that I was sitting there and Spanish was my first language. But when I came to, the when I was adopted into the United States, my family, I was adopted into an Irish-Italian family. Peter, I can I ask how,
1: how old you were when you were separated?
2: When I was separated? I was yes. two. Okay. Uh, my mother was murdered in 1984, August 4th of 84, mm-hmm. and I wasn't adopted until, what, 85, in November of 85? So, you know, I was almost three or four years old when I was adopted, so... I was around the age.
1: Okay, and and you were adopted. Was it New Jersey or Delaware where you grew up?
2: New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Princeton. Okay. Yeah. My mother was a social worker out of Trenton, so she worked out of Trenton. You know, when I was little, but we lived in Princeton, and I grew up in Princeton.
1: Okay. You went to college in Delaware. That's why I'm thinking. Yeah, I went
2: about. to the University of Delaware. Yeah, as a okay. history major.
1: Got it. oh. Me but too. I don't want
2: to be a history professor. <laughs> I think for me growing up it was just something where you're right you you're very much at that stage where you understand a lot of it and I for me I think a lot of my emotions and my understanding of it didn't affect me till later on I would say once I found my father and I kinda completed my journey because I met my family in 98 I didn't meet my father until 2006 so I think I would say a couple years after that when I finally was able to put my story my I guess my legacy and where I come from and I have a full understanding of everything, I think that's when a lot more of the emotions for me started to come into play and I started really understanding everything. Because before then, a lot of it was just hearing different family member stories of what happened, how I was separated, my grandmother's side and this side. And it wasn't for me until I got to hear my father's side and how he kind of confirmed a lot of the things my grandmother told me. That's when I started really having to deal with the emotions of everything.
0: Yeah, it it can be difficult to, I think, understand the entirety of everything that happened. And, you know, I, I had a similar experience where at first you meet your family and then you're just trying to get to know them. And it's only for a couple, you know, it takes a couple years before you're like, whoa, what happened? You know, when you start to understand everything. That was going on in the country at the time and, and that's one thing i've talked with john a lot about in terms of our film is just how do you tell that that story and bring in some of the history because we didn't learn it at first right we weren't going into it knowing this this backstory of el salvador
2: oh i think for me that the thing i was very lucky about was at the at the age at the age of 16 i met a guy down in guarhila named um john juliana who was very close with me and he was somebody who really knew the history of El Salvador and had a lot of colleges come down there and he taught them about the history of El Salvador. So at a young age I really got to learn from him because he was down there in the 80's during the war. I learned from Father Cortina by asking him questions and Father Cortina, his, his, his house was in Guarhila. So every time I'd fly home to see my family, he'd be the one that would take me to Guarhila and, you know, from the pick me up at the airport and take me up there. So he taught me a lot. But for me, it was something where I learned a lot of that young and I, and I understood the history. But as far as, like, my son was born in 2003. And that was when I started really wanting to know my complete story. Before then, it was I got to grow up with my cousins. I got to spend time with my cousins who were around my age. I had a lot of younger cousins that were born after the war that I got to spend time with. And I really got to be a kid in Borhila. And that's something that I, those memories I'll cherish for the rest of my life. But after my son was born was when I really started wanting to know the rest of my story. When I really started bugging my grandmother who my father was, how I can get to meet him and stuff like that. And I wanted the complete story. And that's when I started realizing, like, I, want, I had to start dealing with some of these feelings because I was a young father. I was 20 years old. And I couldn't comprehend in my own head how I could ever leave my kid or how I could ever not be there for my son. So the fact that I had this missing father who never went to find me, never didn't know anything about, that's what kind of drove me to get the complete understanding of what my whole story was about and kind of you know, try to put a grips on all the emotions I felt over the years and try to kind of close my story off in a way.
0: This might be a difficult question to kind of put in, you know, put, put an answer into words, but how do you think things changed? Like, not necessarily, you know, you're finding out more about your father's story. And how did that affect you? You know, what was the change in, in mindset or your feelings or whatever that came from going down this path and learning what your family had been through?
2: I think it was hard because I was somebody when I had my son, me and his mother weren't married, and it was something where I had to, I understood in an early age that there's always two sides to the story. So even though that I loved my grandmother dearly and she was the most important woman in my life, it was something that she did not like my father's side of the family. So I always had to step back and be like, well, you know, I have a son now, and his mother's side of the family might not like me that much. So I really can't judge him until I get to meet him. And then once I got to meet him, it was a different story, and I really started to learn a lot more that, you know, about who he was, some of the characteristics that I got from him. And I think that was the hardest thing for me, to start having to like, you know, really come to grips with understanding your story, understanding who you are as a person, where you get your character traits from. And I think for me, my mother was murdered when I was two. So I never got to really spend any time with her. So I never got to pick up on her side and what she was like and get to really get to know her. So I think that was the hardest thing for me, is really kind of wrapping my head around who I really am, where I really come from, and dealing with it in a way that I just wasn't how to put it. I don't know if I was ready to deal with it at that time. And it probably took me a couple years after that to really start going through all the feelings. But when I see kids now that are from El Salvador that are adopted that don't have all the answers to their story, I'm still very grateful that I got to, you know, learn my story at at a very young age. So, but it's not easy.
0: Well, you know, I, I feel like it takes a while just for you to to get old enough, you know, and, and become mature enough to, to tackle those issues. And, and just like you, it took me, you know, until my mid early twenties to really start to deal with that, you know, the emotional side of everything that happened. Cause, you know, you hear the story and then you start to experience it. And then you kind of have this, I don't want to say a backlash, but this sort of emotional kind of, you know, reawakening or something like that.
1: I was, I was gonna um, jump in and say you know a lot of a lot of your experiences are from Wahila, which is a really important place um, to Probusqueda um, because it, it was one of the places that really it's where John Cortina is from who co-founded Probusqueda and it's it's one of the settlement towns in um, northern El Salvador that that was resettled in the middle of the war um where people came from the refugee camps in Honduras and came back and uh and I, I think you'd have a lot of experiences there having spent a lot of time there that 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 it would be it was somewhere we got to visit when we went for the 2011 day of the disappeared children um and I'd love to hear about some of the people there about who you spend time with as family um I'd love to hear some of your experiences that that helped shape um your you know your life?
2: Um, the biggest influence in my life in Gorghila would have to be my grandmother. Um, she was the one that really was the vocal person to go out looking for me. She was the one that went out to all the uh, Cortina's meetings. She was the one that, you know, brought it to the attention of Father Cortina. Growing up in Gorghila when I was 15, 16 is different than growing up in Gorghila now. When I first went down there, we barely had running water, uh, barely had electricity in the house. And now it, when you walk down the streets of Guajila, every kid has a cell phone,
1: so it's changed a lot. but how big I, is Guajila
2: a couple- of, i don't know how i don't know the exact i think over a thousand, two thousand. i guess over two thousand I'm not hundred percent sure, but I haven't mm-hmm. really taken i don't have the, the statistical data that i know I when
1: i I looked for it before we went I looked on Google Maps and it wasn't on there so it's 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 a pretty small village right.
2: I would say it was when I first went down there, mm-hmm. but now they have they just finished this huge road project in Guajila, where they just put this huge highway right through Gorgila, so it has expanded, and I think it's it's getting bigger, and I think you know towns like how do you put it like Los Ranchos is a town right next to gorgila, and when I was younger you you would take a bus from Gorjila to Los Ranchos, and it'd be maybe like a five six eight minute bus ride. But last mm-hmm. time I was down there it kind of you could see Guarjila growing. Like what my grandmother used to live on was the last or the second to last house in Guarjela. My cousin's house was the last house in Guarjula. Now you can see there's other houses beyond his house now. Like, you know, okay. that are came up. So it's kinda of like people the families are getting bigger. Um it it depends. Like the other thing that's hit Guargila very hard lately is um the fact of a lot of the younger children leaving for the United States illegally to work in the United States. So, I re- it's hard to get an estimate of how big it truly is, because I would say a lot of the younger, like a lot of my younger cousins have stayed, but I'd say half of my younger cousins all now live in the United States. So mm-hmm. instead of having them having families in Guajira, they now live in Virginia, New Jersey, Maryland, and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you spent a couple months a year there when you were younger, and you lived with your grandmother? Is that
2: Yes, it was um, right down the
1: road of... from John Cortina?
2: Um, actually, John Cortina lived in the northern part of Guarhila. He lived actually right next door to my aunt. My grandmother okay. lived down at the far end of town by the soccer fields and the um, basketball courts. But um, I spent most of my life, well, most of my all my summers as a young kid growing up there, My best story of Cortina was the first time I was down there reuniting with my family, I went to go play soccer because it was just, I think this was 20, 30 minutes after meeting my family, I was kind of overwhelmed. I didn't know, my Spanish wasn't as as good as it is now and I was kind of nervous, like I didn't know what to say so I figured why not go play soccer. (laughs) Within 10 minutes of playing soccer with Cortina, I broke his arm for the summer. So... (laughs) He was in a cast all of nine, the summer of '98 because of me, or from March of '98 till June something. He was in a cast, and that was my first. That was my first impression that I left on Father Cortinas. So it, was, it was a friendship built to last. <laughs> but, but most of my time spent down there, it was kind of interesting. Like the first time I was down there, I was very nervous. I didn't know how to react to it all. That was in March of '98 when I went down there for spring break. And I was very kind of just, I was trying to get all the information. I was trying to learn my story. I found out when I was born. I found out that when I was adopted, the uh, judge gave me the birthday of February 22nd, because that was George Washington's birthday, and he thought that would be patriotic for a young Salvadoran boy adopted into the United States. (laughs) When I found my family, I found out that I was born November 1st, All Saints Day. So that was kind of interesting. My first tip was really just getting all this information, trying to absorb all this new info that I have years of unanswered questions, so it was different. Then I would say the, that, 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 that following summer of 98 when I flew down there by myself, because the first time I went with my mother, she flew down with me, and then after that, she would just send me on plane tickets down there by myself, and I would just tour the country by myself, and that's how I really learned to fall in love with Corgila in El Salvador, was just taking buses around the country, um, doing horseback, riding trips with my cousins, um, just literally immersing myself in Gorhila and spending, you know, June, July, and August down there trying to pick up the language. And I think I was also very lucky because the, the man, John Giuliano, ran a bunch of uh, trips. He had kids from the United States coming down there, college kids, working in Gorhila, doing projects in Gorhila. So a big part of for me was the fact that I got to be spend all this time with my family, but when I got overwhelmed or when it can't be the fact of, you know, I grew up in the States as an only child. So then be immersed in a family where you have 30, 40 first cousins always around you, you know, it gets overwhelming. So the fact that I was able to go spend time with Giuliano and the Tamarindo Foundation and the college kids that came down there, I got to speak English again. I got to kind of like, you know, not feel like I was so under the microscope of all my other family stuff and get away from it. then go back. And that was a big reason why I would go down there so much. I also, my caseworker, Pilar Zamora, I struck up a really good friendship with her husband, Jose. I would go to El Salvador and I would spend time with them in San Salvador, where I'd go to Guarjila for a week. Then maybe on the weekends, I'd come down there and spend time with them in the city, go to a movie, go out to eat, and then go back up to Guarjila the following Monday. So I really started learning how to reach out to other people, build other connections, and, you know, kind of balance it, try to balance it in a way that I could take it all in and not get overwhelmed because being 16 years old and going through all this stuff, it is very overwhelming. And when I hear other kids' stories about how, you know, they went down to visit their family, they were thrown into the same Chalapenango, Morazan, they had no escape, they got very overwhelmed, a lot of them left, they didn't come back. So I could, so I, I could understand that.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, people can't see me, but I'm smiling the whole time that you're you're talking, just because there are so many parallels to my own experience. And you know, I'm sure my my mother, who is one of our biggest fans and listeners, uh, will will also, you know, have heard some of the similar things. You know, even down to playing soccer on the first day. I'm pretty sure that that's what uh, we did when we were first meeting, because as you said, you know, you don't speak the language and it's hard to connect with people. So what do you do? You you find a soccer field and you kick the ball around. Um, so I, I guess my next question for you is, is John Cortina is this historical figure in El Salvador who, you know, is put up there with the likes of Romero and some of these really influential people in the history of El Salvador. What what was it like or, or what is it like to have such a personal relationship with him, you know, growing up and then to sort of see his significance, you know, years later?
1: It's it's one of those things with Cortina. He me and him just.
2: I don't know, like he, he spent a lot of time with the Tamarindo with the Tamarindo Foundation, with the kids there. In um, 1998, it was my first summer down there. It was the World Cup in France, and we all went to his house, all the kids from Gorhila. We had this huge party for the final. It was Brazil versus France, and I picked the Brazil side, and I think he was on my side. He, he, was on the, he was on the Brazil side too, and we lost to France, and it was just it was more like a brotherhood with him. It was just he was this great mentor to me, he was very understanding. And later on in life I like I'd see people being like they'd talk about him in this way. Or he'd mean so much to him and like they would be like, he's done all these great things. And I always knew that. But growing up with him, he was always like the uncle that would take that pick me up from the airport and tell me how things are going or you know, If I was having trouble with certain things, I would just go to his house or he would stop by my grandmother's house in Gorilla to check up on me and see how I was doing. It was just that very close relationship that I would say it wasn't till years later, and it wasn't, I would say, till close to when he was about to die. Like, I would say 2005 is when I interviewed him. And it wasn't until really 2005 when I started really understanding how lucky i was to have grown up with this man how lucky i was to have him as such an influential part of my life because for so many years it's like i would kind of the best way i could like similarities like if your father is i don't know and i'm going to say this very weirdly but if your father was nelson mandela or your uncle was nelson mandela or your uncle was a very famous person you might not think of him in that way you'd think of him as that's my uncle that's the guy that always would take care of. you wouldn't think of him in that larger-than-life way till much later. And I think that's what happened with me. Growing up, I didn't think of all that stuff. When I spent a lot of time in El Salvador early on, I wasn't at Probuskadeh as much. I wasn't seeing him do the work with Probuskadeh. I was mostly in gorilla So it wasn't until later when I really wanted to start being more proactive with Probuskadeh that I really start seeing his impact on things. So I just – he was a very humbling guy. But I think the best thing that I would love about Cortina was his stubbornness. He was a very stubborn man because he was, um, he was having trouble. They were telling me that we had a conversation once where he was telling me that they were going to have to cut off his leg if he didn't stop smoking. And he told the doctors to cut off his leg because he didn't want to stop smoking. There was just this stubbornness about him. And then, like, he was just – and when we would, we'd go out with Father Don Dahl, who was one of his other Jesuit friends. I grew up around a lot of these Jesuits that would come see him, and we'd go out to dinner, we'd go out to drink, and the Jesuits could drink. That's the one thing I learned from them, is Cortina <laughs> could drink. And it was just something where he was just this happy man, very humble. Like Every time he'd come to my grandmother's house, she'd always offer him like chickens and livestock just as a thank you because like he meant so much to them. And it was always funny to me because he would never take it. He was like, you make me dinner with this chicken, and we'll all eat together. And it was just this very humble mentality, and it's something where I'm very grateful because a lot of times in my own personal life, when there's something goes on or there's, there's an issue I have, and it's sometimes when someone does something to you, I kind of try to look back on him and think of, well, how would he handle things or what has he taught me over life? And I would honestly say him and my grandmother, are the two most humble people I've ever had the chance to meet, and I was very lucky to grow up that way. And I will I will always see Cortina as this that uncle that you know, that very kind of like warm uncle figure that would pick me up from the airports and take me places. Not as much of the activist for Pro Buscada, because I, I always got to see him in a different way, and I'm very lucky for that.
0: All right. And that's all we have time for this week. Please join in next week for the second half of our interview with Peter. Thanks so much from John and Nelson. Tune right. in next week. Bye-bye. Bye.